This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Ah, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, sitting with Santa, telling him what you want for Christmas. I mean, these are indelible images that we have of Christmas. And yet, have you ever stopped to wonder where they came from? Well, Michael Lisicki is a nonfiction author and the leading American historian on department stores. Yes, department stores. And Michael joins us now. Thanks so much for being here. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. Hey, Michael, what do department stores have to do with Christmas icons? Well, department stores are basically the developers and caretakers of these icons, or I should maybe say were caretakers and developers, these icons. There's so few regional and local ones left, but so many still remain in our heart and played really significant roles in our Christmas lives and memories and traditions. Okay, well, let's start with some of them. For instance, where did Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer come from? Well, Rudolph came from, oh, that's a whole long story. And I, I know you only have a few minutes. Rudolph is part of Montgomery Ward. It was created in 1939. And a gentleman who was a copywriter was just assigned, can we come up with a character that could compete with the popularity of Ferdinand the Bull, a Disney, car- a Disney um, animation? And here he comes up with this misfit reindeer. The guy's going through a really hard time in his life. He sees himself almost like a misfit. And the purpose between Rudolph was because Montgomery Ward, like was comparable to Sears, wanted to make their own coloring book, cartoon book, to give the children when they went to see Santa. It was a marketing ploy. That's all it was. They Wait, had no whoa. idea it was going to take Michael, off. Michael, Michael, are you telling me yes, yes, yes. that we have been sucked in <laughs> for decades by the story of Rudolph because some guy in the marketing department at Montgomery Ward in 1939 wanted to get people to come to the store? Yeah, that was his charge. Hey, if we really want to get upset. Santa alone is a marketing person. I mean, that's why he was brought in. We love Santa. We all love Santa. But Santa was the spokesperson for these stores. He was responsible for Know the Toys, and he was responsible for being a salesman himself. I mean, yes, they all served multiple purposes. And I don't want to commercialize them too much, but that really was one of Santa's jobs. <laughs> so what are some of the other characters that department stores have come up with? Well, I mean, my favorite is still going down in New Orleans. There's Mr. Bingle. And it's all, let me say that these characters kind of developed mostly post-war. When we had to, when department stores were king, and you had to differentiate yourself from one department store to the other, because we had many within, the, within cities. And here you had, again, like New Orleans, Mr. Bingle. He was a little snowman. Santa put an ice cream cone on his hat. He came to life. He became this 
little mischievous little snowman that visited him, visited kids in, in hosp- children's hospitals. He's still beloved. He's still there. A department store there, Dillard, still keeps him alive in merchandise. He's at Mardi Gras. He is still a part of the tradition. But there's so many. I mean, look, every we. Uh, it's hard to you can't really develop a tradition. A lot of these characters, like Uncle Mistletoe from Marshall Field in Chicago, Mr. Jingling, who had Santa's workshop keys in Cleveland. I mean, they all um, they all helped serve the regional identities of the communities that they were based. It was just it was just wonderful, and you you couldn't have the second best Santa in town. You needed the best one, and you needed a little helper there that could make sure your children didn't want to just see Santa Claus. They wanted to see um, Uncle Mistletoe while they were there. It was, uh, yeah, it was right. marketing. It's, it's so brilliant, but the, clearly some of them have lasted longer or resonated more with the public than others have. Yes, it all de- that's true, and it all depends on how much of a caretaker or merchant you are as the years go on. And the most successful ones were the ones that were that were well taken care of. Now, you have when these stores were going away, it was becoming more and more difficult. It, these things are expensive to keep up, and um, that's how many of them faded began to fade away. But the, the real strong ones and the real strong traditions still do keep going today, whether in albeit a reduced form. Um, I mean, look, but look at Rudolph. Look how, look, I mean, that, that continues today. Montgomery Ward never realized what it had on its hands. And, um, and it, it, it went beyond helping getting kids into their department store. And it still brings joy. It's still aired down here um, every Christmas. It's still a beloved part of the Christmas season. Right. It, it, it lasted Montgomery Canada. Ward. I learned all about it last night. What's that? Any, I hope there's at least one of your listeners right now that knows Pumpkinhead. Please, please. <laughs> Pumpkinhead was an Eaton's cre- uh, creation in 1948, developed by the same guy that came up with the concept of Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd and the Flintstones um, prototype. He worked down with Disney. He worked also with Warner Brothers. He worked with Eaton's department store. And he was this, he was this bear that had a mop of this. orange hair. And, yes. Oh, I please. I talk, and I talked to people from Canada last night, and they don't remember. And I'm in tears thinking this is such a wonderful character. <laughs> but Eaton's didn't know how to control him. Eaton's, you know, Eaton, I don't have to tell any of your listeners the story of Eaton's that know Eaton's. Yeah. But they kind of lost directions. And they lost direction with a lot of their tradition. And unfortunately, Pumpkinhead became one that they lost direction with. And, and it, when they brought it back in the early 90s, it was too late for both of them. And it was, yeah, it was created, as you point out, as a direct kind of counterpart. Uh, to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer because I'm sure somebody looked at what was going on down there and thought, oh, we can do that too. Oh, yeah. I mean, Rudolph had the red nose uh, uh, and then you had um, Pumpkinhead that had the orange mop of hair on his head because it was able to hold a clown hat because Santa needed another clown because a clown got a tummy <laughs> ache and we were having the parade coming on. There were all these crazy stories. I mean, you wonder how some of them come up with it. But come on. Pumpkinhead. I mean, that's so I, I cute. Just, uh, 
I only learned I about Pumpkinhead a couple of years ago, actually, and saw the picture. That brings back memories. But maybe it was more in central Canada as opposed to on the West Coast because it was definitely like a created at the Eatons in Toronto. But we forget. Sometimes we forget not all of them are as memorable as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Absolutely. But, you know, I mean, when Eatons came into Vancouver in 48, I mean, I wish to believe that there was, and that's the same year that Pumpkinhead was developed. So I wish to think there was some crossover. But I want to say one thing. What would happen if next year those Woodward's windows weren't there at Canada Place? What would happen? There would be an uproar. That is a tradition. That, there's a typical perfect example of a tradition that Vancouver will not let go. And they assume every year that you're going to have those windows. That's just wonderful. I mean, there's oh, they, your residue. They used to be so much bigger than they are today. But listen, uh, Michael, thank you so much so, for yeah. telling us about this. You brought back a lot of memories for people. We appreciate that. All right. I'm glad to be here. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, Same everybody to up you. there. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We've all heard the phrase, it's the thought that counts, right? And this time of year, that is incredibly important. I think it's a lesson we all try to impart on our kids, too. Let's not judge the present for what it is. It's the thought that counts. And yet, there is that psychological, that human side of us that Maybe deep down inside, do you judge somebody for the gift that they're giving? Let's ask Scott Chance about this. Scott, do you do you judge someone? I do. Yeah, <gasps> I think. And be, I'm just being honest, Simi. I think we all do. And I think anyone who gets a terrible gift and just thinks like, oh, they thought of me. Uh, th- that's not true. That's not true. You think that they didn't think of you because the gift is terrible. If they had no, thought of you. I disagree. I, it is the thought that counts. I think it's just so nice that someone thought enough to bring me something. So if I brought you like, I don't know, a skateboarding magazine, you would be like, Scott, you're so thoughtful. I would say, Scott, what am I supposed to do with this? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because it has nothing to do with you. It's not, it's not something that you're interested in. Right. So it would say that like, I don't know you very well. I didn't put very much thought into it. It's okay. like, I get what you're saying. So what you're saying is that there is definitely, it depends on the gift. If it's egregious, absolutely. because I mean, you bringing me a skateboard magazine would be uh, really weird. Yeah. But, it, but that's like some of the gifts that people get. And so uh, 
I want to talk about this. There were two great threads on Reddit yesterday that kind of relate to this. One was someone asked, what's a gift that screams, I bought this on the way over? And people are like disappointed in these gifts. And I actually think that some of them are pretty great. And then there was another thread that was like, what's the best gift you've gotten under $50? And I thought some of those gifts were terrible. So I thought, Simi, here's what I want to do. Okay. I'm going to get, I'm going to say some gifts. And you tell me if you think it's a good gift or a bad oh, gift. Okay. And then, I'll, and then I'll tell you what the internet thinks. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's so see if I gave you an infrared thermometer, good Love gift it. or bad gift. Yeah. The internet says that's a great Love gift. Love it. So handy. Something that you wouldn't necessarily buy for yourself, but then you're going to use it all the time. Okay. Now, one of those foldable uh, car um, windshield screens that you put up, you know, they have sunglasses on them and you put them in your windshield when you're parked. So the interior of your car doesn't get very hot. I will say it depends on what's on this cardboard thing because I saw one recently in a parking lot <laughs> that on the outside of it so what the what you saw as you walked by was the interior of the Millennium Falcon and like Han Solo, Luke right. Skywalker and Chewbacca and from Star Wars and you hope and I laughed so hard because cool. I was like that's funny so I would say it depends yeah the internet thinks that that's a great gift yeah, something that very people useful. wouldn't necessarily buy for themselves uh, a candle a very nice candle is it scented yeah Yankee yes. candle love it the internet hates that they Aww, think this is a, a thoughtless gift. No. It's like the low-hanging fruit candle. You can get one of those anywhere. Oh, but still, who doesn't love a good... It comes in handy. Who doesn't I know. love a good scented candle? For sure. I mean, I like a good scented candle, right? Yeah. Uh, like, here's another example. Bottle of wine. Brought you a bot- nice bottle of wine. Uh, for somebody who bought that to me, I would say that's a thoughtless gift because I don't drink, and anybody who knows me knows that. So if you did bring that, I'd be, I'd just hand it over to somebody else and say like, well, thank you for the thought. For sure. I wouldn't say that I didn't drink up if they don't know me. I would just say thank you for the thought and I would hand it over to right. you know, somebody and else. And the general consensus is that bottle of wine or booze is not a good gift. It's like a thoughtless gift. It screams, I had no idea what to get you. I didn't even consider it. It's, it's the easy thing. I bought you a bottle of wine. And even if you don't drink, I'm sure you'll just be able to re-gift it or you'll be able to just open okay, it one night. That. I which agree. Which is funny because everyone I know, like, that's what we bring. You but show up at someone's house, you bring a bottle it. of wine. That's why you bring it. People bring that stuff all the time. How about this? Like, a gift basket of, like, body lotions and, uh, mm. you, you know, those gifts. You can buy, like, yeah. Costco sells a bunch yeah. of them, those things. I mean, I'm not going to say no to that because obviously there's some effort that's been put into that. So I'll say, sure, that's a nice gift. Thoughtless gift. Total thoughtless gift. No. So says the internet. No. Why? Because it's just, it shows that like, I have, I don't know you. I just bought this thing that was designed Anybody to be can a gift. I can pick it up. <laughs> not anyone. A box of chocolates. Oh, yes, please. They say terrible. Same no. sort of thing. They say Who it's like a thoughtless, people? you can get it for anyone. Uh, good gift, wireless mouse. Wireless mouse and keyboard. If you're a tech person, they're like, this is a really, a really thoughtful I gift. Just, I will take the box of chocolates over a wireless mouse and keyboard. Okay, how about this? I got you a gift certificate for an activity that I think that you would like. Hmm. I'd have to say it depends on the activity. Uh, Okay. The example that they give is like an art class or martial arts lessons. No, that's that. No, that's a bad gift. Not even the art class. You would do, you wouldn't do the art class. No, I wouldn't. I'd I'd give that to somebody else. Okay. They say all types of food. Um, hmm. I love, I'm a foodie, so I would love that, but somebody might not. There are lots of, I know people who are not foodies. It's astounding to me, but it happens. So I think, 
yeah, you, you should probably think a little more about, will this person really like this? For sure. I think food is a thoughtless gift. They say that food is a thoughtful gift. Uh, another one here, anything that is sort of a battery-powered, handheld, rechargeable thing like a flashlight or a fan or uh, one of the examples that they give Simi is like a a battery bank, you know, that you can plug your phone into if there's nowhere to plug Love your it. phone into. Yeah, Love very it. thoughtful gift, easy to give. You can order it I, on Amazon and cheap. I will say that one of the presents that we're doing the under $20 thing this year, I, I mentioned earlier this week, one of the presents under the tree is a super fast wireless charger. It's not for me. It's for somebody at my house. And I know that that person is going to be thrilled when they get this. Yeah. It's a really great gift. We have one in my house and like, it's always a battle for who's going to use it. Exactly. Some really great gift ideas and some really not great gift ideas there. I would say about 80%, 80% there. Don't give somebody a class to something they've never gone to unless they have expressed an interest in that. But what if it was like, oh, I think you would really like Still this. No. Nope, nope, what if it's like, nope. I want to get you this and we're going to go and do it together. It's like we're going to spend time together. Simi, I got us rock climbing lessons together. No, no. This is a bad idea. Even just, I want to spend the time with Scott, you. Scott, I like you, but I don't want to go to rock climbing with you, but thank you. No, All that's right. just a bad idea. The but internet I'll take disagrees. The, I'll take the lotion basket or whatever that is. And the meat thermometer. <laughs> and the meat thermometer. Love it. Thank you for that. You're welcome. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right. It's time now for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. You know, it's report card time. Yes, and my sympathies for the listener who is also a parent and who is for the first time looking at one of the BC government's nifty new report cards with the nifty new grading system. So over the summer, the government said letter grades are a thing of the past, and we're going to have a new system of telling you how your children are doing in school And what you're going to see on the report cards and what parents have been seeing the last little bit is uh, your child is going to be ranked as emerging, developing, proficient, and extending. And more than a few parents are going, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit confusing when you have gone from what you know and how that works and what it means to, well, what does it mean to be emerging? Yeah, you know, and the government's first comment is, well, hey, we announced this over the summer. You know, people knew this was coming. Sure, because everybody pays attention to school yeah, stuff in the summer. Pays attention over the summer. And, and also that, I mean, the thing about letter grades is you can debate them, but they're familiar because a lot of parents went through school and went through letter grades themselves. And the real struggle is defining what those words mean. So what is the difference between emerging and developing and proficient and extending, uh, the education ministry has posted lengthier definitions and guidelines online. Sammy, I've read those, and I have to say they aren't a hell of a lot of help. It sounds quite arbitrary. And, you know, it's interesting. I gather that's the reaction of some teachers, too. I mean, teachers hear from parents, and parents want an explanation. And You know, the government a couple of years ago proposed this whole system and asked everybody in the system, what do you think? They asked parents, they asked students, they asked teachers, 
and they asked administrators. And Simi, the, the only people that liked it were the administrators and the bureaucrats in the education ministry. This is the new ideology of education. Uh, you shouldn't be handing out letter grades because they stigmatize children. And so the government went with the bureaucrats and the administrators, not with the teachers and the parents and the students. And the government is now reaping the reward from a lot of confused parents who want to know what the hell all this means. And doesn't this just mean that the teachers have more work to do now because you yes. have to communicate more, you have to explain more, you have to think harder about what category the child fits into? Yeah, when I wrote about this over the summer, and it did get reported, Global did some stories on it, other news media, what we heard back, and we, when we were reported that everybody in the system except the bureaucrats had rejected this plan, uh, we heard back from, you know, education people, insiders and that, that, oh, well, you know, uh, we'll get all this sorted out and it'll be fine. And then the other thing they said was the BC Teachers Federation supported it. Well, yes and no. I think... In fairness to the BCTF, they, their reaction really was, let's give it a try, but their own members are coming back to them, and the BCTF is now saying the rollout has not been all that good. And first of all, Simi, not surprising. It's a lot more complicated for teachers. It's more work for them, as if they weren't already had enough work. And there's some pushback. Now, you know, you talk to the government about this and they privately say, well, you know, there's another BCTF contract coming up in a year and a bit. It expires in 2025. And, you know, the BCTF is laying the groundwork for asking for more money to deal with the reporting situation. Well, that may be true. And it is also true that BCTF and governments in BC have disagreed a lot over the years. But on this one, I go back to what teachers originally said about all this and teachers said, this sounds like a lot more work, and it sounds like parents are going to be confused and bewildered, never mind the students. The TF, some teachers right off the top, Simi, pointed out a problem to me as well, and I don't know how they've sorted this one out, but when the government announced we were going to these new emerging rankings, they said as well, that's only for grade one to nine. We're going back to letter grades or we're sticking with letter grades for 10, 11, and 12. As I understand it, that means that some students who went into grade nine this fall are on the new ranking system. They're no longer being letter graded. But next year, they're going to, when they go to grade 10, they're going to be switched back to letter grades. Because much as the government believes in this new ideological ranking system, the universities are going, we're not interested in transcripts that describe a student well, exactly. emerging. They don't have the time. The they don't have is. the time to go through that. Yeah. We want to see grades. I mean, we want to see A's and B's and C's. And whether or not you get into a lot of universities is going to depend on your transcripts, as it always has. And some universities want to see 10 as well as 11 and 12. So the government has had to abandon its scheme for grade 10, 11, and 12. And some teachers have told me, so they got students that are going into the new system for one year in grade nine, and then going back to the other system for grade 10. And of course, eventually you're going to get a right. bunch of students arrive at grade 10, semi who've been on the old system and are going to go, what are all these A's, B's, and C's all about? Oh, what the boy. hell do they mean? 
All right, we are back with Vaughn Palmer this morning. Lots for us to talk about, including the ongoing saga of, in Surrey. What is it this time, Vaughn? Sydney, <laughs> I'm sure when you returned to British Columbia from your recent vacation, the first thing you asked yourself as you got off the plane was, gee, I wonder what's going on with the Surrey policing standoff. <laughs> and probably the How second you know? thing you thought was, surely they've sorted that out by now. <laughs> I don't make any assumptions anymore. Well, okay, and that's a good assumption because not only is it not over, but the timetable that I've seen suggests it is going to spill over into the new year. It may be March, April, and May before this gets sorted out. So here's the latest update. Uh, the administrator, Mike Sayre, appointed by Mike Farnworth uh, to oversee the whole thing. The government took, got rid of the police board and took control of the situation out there or thought it had, uh, the administrator delivered a budget for policing services for Surrey as promised on November the 30th. They haven't released the numbers to the public because they want to give Surrey Council time to digest everything, to ask some questions, and until that happens, uh, they're not going to release it to the public. So we don't know what the actual budget is. However, Mayor Brenda Locke says... A Surrey Council is not in any great rush to look at these budget numbers. They're being imposed on Surrey, and the Council has other business to deal with. And she <coughs> claimed, in an interview with uh, my colleague, Gord Hoekstra at Vancouver Sun, uh, claimed that she couldn't even remember what the budget numbers were, which... Oh, really? Fine, fine. I find but, that very you know, hard to believe. You, Come if on. You drive around in Surrey these days, you'll see some billboards up. Uh, the Surrey Council majority is putting up billboards warning Surrey residents that, quote, the NDP's policing tax is coming in the new year. So that the Surrey hasn't given up the idea. Surrey's still in court, by the way, to uh, Simi fighting this thing. Uh, the provincial government has weighed in on the court case. The province says Surrey's court action should be dismissed because the issue is, quote, moot. The government has imposed the new Surrey Policing Service on Surrey by law, and there is no longer any room for any legal argument over that. It's going ahead. So uh, the standoff continues, the political standoff continues, and um, a couple of dates mm. you want, want to mark on the calendar. First is March the 1st. The administrator has given Surrey until March the 1st to go back and forth and ask all the questions it needs on the policing budget. And that's the tentative date, cutoff date, when the administrator will make the budget public. The final legal authority over the Surrey policing budget is not up to Surrey Council anymore. The provincial director of policing services will make the final call and presumably what happens on the 1st of March, Simi, is that the budget that the administrator has decided on will go to the provincial director of policing services if Surrey Council hasn't said anything by then, and it will be imposed. That's tentatively what's going to happen. Uh, Brenda Locke says she's looking mostly to the courts still. She's hoping the courts will provide relief. And she says, as far as she's concerned, the key date is May 15th. That is when, by law, the Surrey budget needs to be fixed. And if you've seen her billboards, she says if it's imposed on Surrey, 
Surrey ratepayers are looking at a huge increase in taxes to pay for the NDP decision to go to Surrey Policing Services over the RCMP. So see me, this thing is as messy as it ever was. <laughs> so given all of that and how significant this is and how important mm-hmm. this is, because Surrey residents, they, you know, they're watching their bills just like everybody else very closely. Yeah. I do, I do find it astounding that the mayor would say, oh, there's no rush to look at the numbers. Of course there's a rush to look at the numbers because the public needs to know what's going on. Yeah, I, that's true, but. True, this but. Is a, this is, the but is the political strategy here. The mayor's strategy politically, and that of a council majority, is to essentially force the New Democrats to impose this on Surrey and impose the costs on Surrey. And that's why she's telling people, brace yourself for the NDP tax increase. Privately, I would say she recognizes there's no turning back on this thing. It's going to go ahead. But she doesn't want to be blamed for the cost. And she wants the New Democrats to wear it. And because next year is an election year, um, the New Democrats have, I would say, dragged their feet on facing up to this thing for a while. They hold most of the seats in Surrey, and they don't want Surrey voters, when they go to vote next fall, to be saying, yeah, well, the New Democrats sure raise my property taxes. And that's a political battle, and there's plenty of room for debate around this. But as I see it, that's the political game that's being played here. Played here. She's daring the New Democrats to impose it on Surrey, and in essentially putting pressure on government to minimize the cost. And that's where the real negotiation is going on here, Simi. The provincial government has put $150 million on the table to help Surrey with transition costs. Locke and her council say that's not enough. They say the added cost will be $464 million. So three times as much as the province has put on the table. If there's anything going on in the back rooms on this, Simi, it's a negotiation for how to make sure that the direct cost impact on Surrey property taxpayers in the coming year is minimized. And there is room, I gather, to move some things around and minimize that at least for the first year of the electoral cycle. So I think that's what's really going on in the back rooms is there's been plenty of political posturing in public. What it's really about is making sure the provincial government absorbs the cost of something that the provincial government has imposed on Serbia. Okay. And do they really, they don't really have much of a choice right now, do they? Like, as you say, election year, next year, they want yeah, to look. make this as easy as possible. So I, they're going to, they would have to do it. Yeah. I, yes. I mean, the New Democrats wish they'd never seen this thing, obviously. They wish they'd never gotten dragged into it. They had no idea when they first got dragged into it by Doug McCallum that this thing might come back and they might have to go back on it. All of that is true. And when you heard the hesitation in David Eby's voice last week about just going along with what Mayor Ken Sim wants to do with the Vancouver Park Board, and where Eby said, um, I have some conditions, you know that in the back of his mind, he's going, no way is this going to turn into another Surrey. We're going to have this thing straightened out and done 
before I end up wearing it or it ends up being an election issue in the next civic election in Vancouver because, see me, David Eby and the New Democrats hold most of the seats in the city of Vancouver as well. So if they mishandle the park board issue and it turns into a political backlash, they don't want to be wearing that one. I can see why. Yeah, time to set out some rules on these kinds of situations. Avon, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about cheating this morning. I know there's all sorts of things we could put under that umbrella, but we're going to talk about using chat GPT to cheat. This is a hot topic over the past year as chat GPT has become uh, kind of more intertwined with our everyday work. And for people at school, for kids at school in particular, this is a concern. And our Scott Chance is with us now to talk about that. Hi, Scott. Hi. Yeah, this is like a huge thing that teachers everywhere are kind of reacting and parents are reacting like, oh, my gosh, my kids aren't going to be able to learn. They're just going to type their questions into chat GPT and well, they do the same thing, right? Yes, of course, (laughs) like everybody is. And ChatGPT is just going to do all their work for them. It's going to write all their essays and... there's so much concern, right? Like I'm taking a, po- a course at a post-secondary place and the professor was like, please don't use ChatGPT to write your essays. You know, people, people are concerned. But why would you? Well, okay. I, I, I'm, I was a returning student to school, so like a mature student. Yes. And I loved the return. Didn't love it so much when I was like 18, 19 in school. But in an adult, when I went back, I thought, oh, I see the value in this. Why would I want to cheat? I'm here to learn something. Well, yes. I mean, there is that. But there's also, like you like you said, mature student. And there's people who are, um, you know, looking to just get through it, as it were. But, yeah, it calls into question, like, what what is the role of chat GPT and AI in education? And this is something that a lot of people are sort of trying to, to figure out and process. Now there's been a lot of research done on this and it turns out that cheating is not changing. Like students are cheating the same amount that they have always cheated, if not more. Uh, but they're not necessarily using chat GPT to do it, which I found very interesting. So I spoke with a woman named Denise Pope. She's, she's a researcher at Stanford university and has all types of, uh, information on this, and I asked her if she was surprised to find out that, yes, they're cheating, but they're not using AI to do it. Well, yes and no. So we've been collecting data on cheating for many, many years, over a decade, and cheating numbers are historically very high in high schools. This was particularly U.S. high schools, although there were some high schools in Canada as well that we surveyed. Cheating numbers vary between about 60 and 70 percent of kids say that they've cheated in one way or another in the past month. So cheating numbers were already high. We had then the ability to survey the same schools, a subset, but the same schools to see if those cheating numbers went up in the beginning of 2023, which was basically a few months after ChatGPT came onto the scene. And it turns out those numbers did not change. So the good news is it didn't unleash, you know, a torrent of extra cheating. The bad news is those numbers didn't change. Kids are still cheating at a really high level. How is education going to react to that as, you know, AI and machine learning and all of these things just change that that whole game for, you know, uh, teachers and professors and students? So I see AI as an opportunity for us to really work with educators and students to think about what do we really need to know in a world where AI will be ubiquitous. 
Yeah, and I, that's so encouraging to hear. I love that because this isn't going away. Um, and I did read something interesting. I'd love to know your take on this. Uh, there was just sort of anecdotally a post on a, on a message board that I frequent from a student who didn't use ChatGPT or AI to write a paper. And then I guess that there are programs that professors can use that can sort of scan and, you know, sort of interpret uh, whether or not a program like that would have been used. And the professor sent this student's paper back and said, you can't hand this in. This is all plagiarized and written by by ChatGPT. And the student, mm. he was serious. He was like, absolutely not. I wrote this myself. And of course, many people started responding and saying that, you know, these programs that are designed to catch cheaters, they're not perfect either. Exactly. And, you know, we're seeing this a lot. We're seeing um, kids say, wait, I really didn't do it. A lot of these kids may be first generation uh, they may be non-native English speakers, uh, places that say that they can catch kids. Uh, Turnitin.com, as an example, are working as best as they can to make that technology better to avoid that. But what we would prefer is to really look below at what are the root causes of cheating. Che- cheating is a symptom of much larger root causes. So rather than play the catching game, or the policing game, we want to actually look at what's causing students to cheat in the first place and address those causes. So often kids are feeling like they're overloaded, they don't have enough time to do all the work that's required of them. Um, Sometimes they think that the work is busy work, they don't understand or see meaning or purpose in it. Sometimes they just don't feel like it's okay to make a mistake, there's way too much pressure on them. They're not in an environment where they feel someone has their back. So there's a lot of reasons why students cheat. We'd rather get at those root causes than try to play this police game, which we know really doesn't work in the long run. How do we get at those root causes? And I also have to wonder, is this sort of like, um, you know, one of these little gray areas where students would say like, oh, I'm not like out and out cheating. I'm not like copying off of somebody else, but there's kind of like, I don't, and maybe there isn't a gray area, but maybe talk a bit about that. Like what actually um, counts as cheating and, and how we get in front of that and, and you know, deal with the, the root of that, why kids are doing it. Right. So that's a great question. So on our survey, we have about 15 different ways listed that teachers may call cheating, but students may not really call it cheating. In fact, some, in some cases, students say this isn't cheating at all. So I'll give some examples. So that most students know sort of copying from someone's test, you know, with or with their knowledge is, is fairly egregious cheating. And very few students um, at least admit to doing that. My guess is they're telling the truth and not a lot of kids are doing that. Where we see the higher numbers is copying someone's homework A lot of times the students will tell us they do that because they think the homework is busy work, it doesn't make sense for them to spend all the time doing it, or they really don't understand the subject, so trying to do the homework is going to be a lost cause, but they don't want to get a zero or a bad grade. So sometimes, you know, and another form of cheating is staying home on the day of the test to get more time to study or to perhaps try to get some friends to tell you what's on the test for tomorrow, Mm -hmm. Um, forging a parent's note, right? Forging a parent's note saying you're sick and can't take a test. There's a bunch of different ways uh, on our survey, some of which people would think are more egregious than others. But, But think about this. 
in class, you're often told to work together. And in the real world, we are often told to collaborate. That's how we get things done. Very few people do things alone without using a computer or other resources or asking a friend or a coworker to help them get a project done. And so what people call cheating in the traditional sense may actually not be the right thing to focus on in schools. We, we may need to redesign our assessments and how we check for mastery to make it more aligned with how people work in the real world. That's Denise Pope. She's a lecturer at Stanford Graduate School of Education with some interesting insight into both uh, cheating and what is considered cheating and how AI is going to affect the future of education. Or as I would put it, old cheating versus new cheating. Because some of the things no, that she was talking she about. it's not cheating. Oh, well, back in the day, I mean, these are things that you did. Did you ask a friend for homework? Yeah, sure. Probably at some point. Did you look at a friend's test while you were taking it? Yeah, probably. Like there's all different forms of doing this. Chat yes. GPT is just the latest. Well, it's, but to her point, all of this is more about what do we, like we want to be teaching our kids how to learn, how to teach themselves, how to collaborate. You know, no one ever looks at us like working together in an office setting and is like, oh, they're cheating on getting their work done. So, Right. But back in school, you thought, hey, if I pay you 20 bucks to write an essay for me, which I'm sure many people did yes. back in the day, yes. you know, we'd be like, oh, that's wrong. Right. But if I paid tw- someone $20 to outsource my work, it would be like, oh, you're really, really smart. Hmm. That is what people do now. All the time. Yes. Interesting. All right. Good way to look at it. Interesting way to look at it. Scott, thank you. But don't cheat, kids. No, <laughs> kids, stay in school. Don't cheat. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> you're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, it's funny. We were just talking about school and having to deal with all the ins and outs of school and navigating that. Things don't really change when you become an adult, do they? Because then you end up having to navigate what's going on in the workplace, in the office, all the different personalities, the people you have to deal with. And quite often you run into problems there. Maybe there's somebody who is sabotaging you or you feel as though they are. They're going to the boss and they're telling stories about some of the other employees, somebody that we would call an office saboteur. What do you do with that? What do you do in situations like that? Well, you know, it's more common than you think, actually. Joining us now is Dr. Judith Lavas, who's a business consultant and career success coach. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Is this more common than we realize that people have to deal with office sabotage? I think we have to acknowledge the fact that uh, dealing with difficult personalities at work is more common than we think. It's not always sabotaging, but but difficult behaviors and difficult people are in the workplace like a very, very common thing. And what would you consider to be then challenging behavior? What do people complain about? Yeah, so it's when it comes to difficult behaviors is uh, basically anything from negativity and gossiping, um, sabotaging teamwork or sabotaging another uh, person's performance. But we always have to think about it that the difficult person is himself or herself is under a lot of internal stress. So this internal stress can result from insecurity, lack of communication skills or personal problems. So the person itself is struggling internally and that will manifest in the workplace. So when this person is um, negative or 
or starting gossiping or sabotaging someone, then we have to, we have basically two solutions to that. And when it comes to dealing with difficult personalities in the workplace, I always say that there's two key things to address. One is setting healthy boundaries, and another one is um, learning effective communication. And the two go hand in hand. So without one, uh, the other is not very um, helpful. So when it comes to healthy boundaries, is the easiest thing is not engaging in gossip, for example, or asserting your needs respectfully. And uh, that's basically coming from our personalities that how good we are at setting healthy boundaries. Not everyone is good at in their personal lives. And it's, I think it's even difficult, more difficult in a per, uh, professional setting. Uh, but that's number one. And then number two is learning effective communication skills. So that could be anything from uh, active listening, um, when, when we listen to another person to understand instead of listening to respond. So it's basically um, uh, really seeing that other person and hear right. what the other person has to say. And, and maybe another effective uh, communication is an open and honest communication but, or expressing our concerns calmly. But yeah. it, doesn't this make it seem like okay, we always have to take the high road, though, when it feels quite often like perhaps that other person is not taking the high road? Yes, absolutely. But that's being an adult, right? <laughs> we all, I'm not saying we always have to um, uh, take the high road, but we have to try first, resolve this, uh, this difficult situation without escalating it. But there comes a point where it cannot be not escalated to HR, for example, because when our neck is under on the under the line, is like sabotaging our performance, or we're afraid yeah. of getting of yeah being let go from the workplace. Then there is time when we need to escalate the issue, right? So it's when there is a repeated incident right. or violation of company policies, or when when even our personal safety or personal work integrity is a concern, then it's definitely, I would uh, recommend escalating it to HR, starting with probably a supervisor and then going to the uh, HR. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. I I know people need to protect themselves in the workplace, so we appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi talk about something that happened in the United States. It it just seems it's everywhere this morning. Lots of discussion about how this impacts the presidential race. But we want to know, does the Colorado Supreme Court's decision mean anything to Donald Trump? Reggie Giacchini is with us now, our Washington correspondent for Global News. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So has the former president said anything about this decision? Well, uh, he hasn't said anything vocally. He has used his fingers to do the complaining about this, uh, calling this an undemocratic uh, uh, decision, you know, arguing that this is how dictatorships start, even though this is a former president who said that he could be a dictator for just one day only on his first day. But he did not opt to talk about this in person uh, last night when he was at a rally in Iowa just a month out from the caucuses. 
either because he was trying to digest it still or was seething, you know, whatever his case may be. He took to social media and that is where he has been fired up. Okay, and what has he had to say? Well, again, he called this uh, undemocratic. He says that this is, you know, the, the, the continuation of the witch hunt. He doesn't agree with anything um, that, that happened in Colorado. And he's pointing to the other court cases that happened around the country that went in the opposite direction and decided not to move on this kind of 14th Amendment um, fight. You know, the, the big question here, Simi, is... Is this really going to make any kind of difference, whether the Supreme Court weighs in or not? Because this is a former president who, whenever something, um, you know, legally perilous comes up behind him, tends to benefit from a bit of a polling push. Okay, so does this impact the race result? We should remind people what actually happened here. What did the Colorado Supreme Court say? So this was brought by uh, a group uh, in Colorado who tried to use uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was put in place after the Civil War to say anybody who participated in um, an insurrection cannot hold uh, you know, a- an office uh, and take an oath of office in the United States. A lower court said that you know, Trump fell short of that because he's not been convicted of, um, you know, inciting an insurrection. That court case is still moving through. But the the, the upper court overturned that and said, no, in, in fact, we do think that Donald Trump did take part in this insurrection because they're using the vagueness in the wording of the Constitution. It's really kind of, you know, it, it's, it's political and constitutional, you know, mumbo jumbo down here. But ultimately, the, the court is saying, look, it says that if you do this with an insurrection, you can't take an office. And arguably, the president is the highest office in the country because he's commander in chief, which also makes it a military position as well. So the question is, will Supreme Court overturn what the high court in Colorado did? Or are they going to keep it in place? Either way, there are big consequences here for Trump and for the GOP. Okay, so are they saying the Republican primary or are they saying the actual presidential ballot? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a big question because uh, there is a deadline in Colorado, January 6th, January 5th, uh, to get names on the uh, ballot for the primary. If Supreme Court takes this uh, and sits on it and they don't have a decision, that would keep Trump on uh, the ballot. If they take it and overturn it, it would keep Trump on the ballot. Ultimately, there's a risk here that Trump remains on the ballot. But by the time the general election comes around, whatever the Supreme Court decision is, that could keep Trump off of the ballot in Colorado. I think the more short term thing to look at here is, um, you know, now that Colorado has done this in a state that Trump likely wasn't going to win anyways, do more competitive states start to do this and and add the, you know, kind of um, legal pile to what could be, a, you know, a very busy and Supreme Court uh, term right. where they don't want to be dealing with political things like this. Was there a sense that other states perhaps were waiting to see what happened here? There, I mean, it is possible. This has already failed in a number of states already, including uh, Michigan, uh, a state that Trump, you know, desperately needs to win uh, because it is, uh, you know, a, a bit of a swing state here. It's heavily blue right now, but there's a risk that it could flip back to being uh, slightly on, on the Republican side. But if you had a state like Georgia, if you had a state like Pennsylvania, uh, states that Joe Biden won by kind of squeaking out a, a win, if they were to start to put this, uh, you know, through the, the kind of legal and, and political, you know, uh, uh, machine, you know, what does that what what happens here? Ultimately, this is going to just fire up the base under Donald Trump. And he's going to try to use this to claim that he is the victim. And he's already winning in the fact that other people that he's running against, like Nikki Haley and Chris Christie, are saying courts shouldn't be able to decide this. It should be up to the people that decide this. So now the people that are trying to beat Trump are right. again having to back Trump. 
Yeah, that is so weird. This race, Reggie, it just keeps doing this. You mentioned Nikki Haley there. How is she doing in terms of gaining support? Is she holding steady? So she's holding steady nationally. She's building and gaining support, um, you know, on a more local level, particularly in a place like New Hampshire, where she ended up getting the, um, you know, the tilt from the uh, from from Governor Chris Sununu, um, you know, and that's a big deal because New Hampshire is first in the country when it comes to primaries. You know, that's just a couple of weeks away at the at the middle towards end of January. And if she's able to kind of, you know, edge out Donald Trump in the first primary, it gives her a bit of a boost, possibly on the national scale. Now, what happens in New Hampshire doesn't always, you know, register to what's going to happen on the general ticket. Um, But she is she is she's kind of she's taking this position of, look, Trump shouldn't be in office. We shouldn't be having politicians of yesterday leading the country towards tomorrow. while at the same time, keeping Trumpism alive in some of the policies that she's trying to push. Okay, and so what? What about Ron DeSantis and all this? You haven't mentioned his name much. He see at one time it was like he was going to be the next president. I, I mean, look, he still polls higher than than Nikki Haley on on most of the national polls, but still way behind Donald Trump. And ultimately, here, all of the other candidates that are in this race, whether it's Christie or DeSantis or Nikki Haley, they have an almost impossible um, uh, amount to kind of climb here because Donald Trump is so far ahead in all of the national polling, even with all of the kind of, um, you know, unknowns linked to the legal troubles that Trump is facing. Look, DeSantis is the most, quote unquote, Trumpy of all of the candidates that are running right now. It works in Florida. It's not registering as much across the rest of the country. So, again, it opens that question. If it's not going to be Trump, who's it going to be? Someone who is like Trump or someone who just brings Trumpism with them with their own political uh, agenda? So you've turned Trumpy into a word now? Is that well, it? Well, <laughs> I mean, look, it's, it's, been, it's been a lot of years. He, he is, it has been. This party embraces Trump. This, this country for a while embraced Donald Trump. So it was Trumpism. And the people who embraced the Trumpism found themselves to be a bit Trumpy. Okay, I'll go with that. I like it. We'll use it. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. It does feel like cities everywhere are dealing with encampments of people who don't have homes, right? Cities all over North America are seeing this. Vancouver's certainly not immune. We've seen them pop up in different areas. One place in particular, though, where it seems to be permanent is a crab park. And there is an area of that park that has been set aside for people to stay there, essentially. You probably, maybe you've seen that permanent kind of encampment. Now, some of the residents of that area, though, are raising some serious concerns about the lack of support, uh, just the lack of facilities that they have, and they have filed a complaint against the city of Vancouver. So we wanted to find out more about this and what is going on. So Weber Jack is with us now, the litigation director for the BC Civil Liberties Association. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So can you tell me a bit about this complaint? What is going on? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, uh, Crab Park has a tent city that is um, sanctioned essentially by by the city. Um, and the residents there have filed a complaint uh, alleging discrimination on the part of the city and the park board um, for failing to provide uh, essential services to the residents there, things like running water, washrooms, electricity, um, that is essentially making conditions unlivable um, and it's impossible for people to reside there in a dignified manner as a result. Okay, so what is the city of Vancouver obligated to provide? Well, that, that's a good question and probably um, something that will be uh, or may be decided uh, through this complaint. 
Um, but, you know, it, basically what the residents are, uh, of uh, Crab Park are asking for is just, you know, the bare essentials um, that are required for them to, to be able to survive, essentially. So um, would you say right now that there is no sort of written requirement for the city to provide these things? Well, there there is a memorandum of understanding um, that that the city uh, agreed to to provide services. So um, I would say that there's a requirement. Um, I, I don't know if that what's in there is um, necessarily what the law will require. Um, so th- that part of it is unclear um, what the minimum standards might be. Okay. And so I know this is all part of the, the court case originally where um, the court had decided that you, you can't you have to give some kind of room for people to, to stay here, right? Yeah. Well, the, the fundamental issue is that there just isn't adequate shelter for people in the city of Vancouver. And that's true really everywhere in the country. And what the courts have said is that when that's the case, there's nowhere for people to go. Um, the charter guarantees that they have a right to shelter themselves in public spaces. Okay, and so that's the right to shelter themselves in public spaces, which is what they are doing there. Um, and so what what is the rest of the pro- – what kind of connection is there between the people who are there at Crab Park and the people who might be trying to help them? Is the city there on a daily basis? Like, what is the city providing? Um, well, so the park board, um, you know, is responsible for the park, and uh, they are there regularly. Um, unfortunately, for the most part, what they seem to provide is just kind of – bylaw enforcement. Um, the area that's designated for the camp is quite small relative to the need for shelter. Um, so people end up kind of outside of that designated area and park rangers uh, are regularly um, coming in and basically harassing them, um, taking their property, making them move along, things like that. Um, the, the, the park residents I, I know have been trying to communicate with the park board and the city about getting these services and it, it's been a, it's been difficult to get any kind of um, response, positive response from those, uh, from those bodies. So is that what this process is all about? And so what is this complaint process like? What's going to happen now? Um, yeah. So the, the complaint was uh, filed by the, the residents. Yes. For that reason, because there um, seems to be no other way to get these services. Um, the tribunal, um, the first step is a screening process and the tribunal decides whether um, it makes sense for the complaint to go ahead, and, and that is the hurdle that has been passed. Um, so the next step is uh, can be for mediation. The tribunal can try to help the parties um, come to the table and, and negotiate uh, a resolution. Uh, if that doesn't work, then uh, they'll go on to a formal hearing uh, where both sides you know, make arguments in front of the tribunal about um, the, the residents will try to argue why they're being discriminated against. Uh, I imagine the city will um, argue that they aren't. The tribunal then makes a decision. And if they find that there is discrimination, um, the tribunal will grant some remedy. Probably, I I would hope, they would be um, ordering the city to provide the services that are being requested. I mean, it's tricky, Faber, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it is a park. It's designated as a park. And if you're providing services, aren't you kind of turning it into a residential area? Well, uh, I think what's not tricky is that um, we all need a home. We all need a place to live. These people don't have anywhere else to go. Uh, The courts have recognized that um, many times over. 
they need they need a place to reside. Uh, and right now, Crab Park is it. Uh, unfortunately, that's that's the best they have. And you know, I think that the city has a responsibility to help all of its residents um, survive and uh, and thrive and live in dignified ways. And right now, that's not really possible at Crab Park, and so. Um, Right. That needs to be fixed. Okay, so what can the city provide then that would improve the situation? What's needed down there? So things like running water, um, washrooms, showers, uh, electricity, um, shade in the summer. Um, again, we're, really what's being asked for is the bare essentials of, of things that people need to just live and so how long do you anticipate this process is going to take? Does this kind of get the ball rolling here? Definitely gets the ball rolling. Um, uh, you know, uh, hopefully mediation can start any time and, and um, could lead to some resolution. I mean, the parties can do that on their own as well. Um, I know that the tribunal is very backed up. There's a big backlog that they're trying lots of different ways to, to deal with. Um, and this case has, they, they've agreed to deal with this case on an expedited basis. Um, but I, I know that complaints have been taking, you know, many months or, or years to resolve. So um, we'll have to wait and see how quickly they can get to this one. And so what has been the reaction then from the proper, like when the encampment perhaps has asked for running water or showers or shade, has it just, have, have they communicated anything at all from the city? Well, uh, my understanding is that uh, they, the, the communication has been very one, you know, one way. Um, we uh, did attend a, a meeting this month uh, with the park board and um, yeah, I, I don't know. There wasn't much um, of substance discussed. Uh, I, I know that we've heard that at one time there was some access to electricity um, from kind of an a, a electrical pole or light pole. Um, and the city came and just shut that off was their response to that. So um, yeah, n- again, I, I think just the fact that the complaints, been filed, the residents have had to go this route. Um, it's pretty good evidence that the, the city's not being responsive. All right. Well, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now for Making Sense of the Markets with Lori Pinkowski. Lori is a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity and joins us now. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. All right. Let's talk about these markets. How are they doing? Yeah, markets are fairly flat uh, this last full trading week of the year. Um, You know, investors are, they continue to shrug off warnings from policymakers about expectations for rate cuts as this year's rally continues because central banks here in uh, in North America have been talking a little tougher as of late because the market's really getting excited about uh, rate cuts in early spring. Uh, again, I think we need to see inflation back at target um, and, and stay there for a bit before you actually see some rate cuts. However, I think the Bank of Canada probably, um, you know, has, it has more pressure to reduce rates just because of our real estate market slowing. But the good news, Simi, you know, although the TSX hasn't had a 
uh, hasn't been as strong as some of the other indices as of late. This seven-week-long rally in U.S. markets is the longest string of weekly gains since 2017. So, so that's big news. The S&P 500 is within striking distance of its all-time high. The equal weight index, which is again is something better to compare to, is maybe five percent away from its high. Uh, the Dow closed at another record yesterday, and the Nasdaq is coming off nine straight sessions of gains. So, again, when you and I were talking during that September-October correction, and you know, I was telling people, you know, not to panic, this is going to come. You know, whenever you get some of those corrections, there's always opportunity on the other side of that. And that's exactly what's happened here uh, just because the Fed paused. And that's what we had been waiting for for a year and a half. Okay, so some things to look forward to. Yeah, I, I, I do think so. I am, a lot of analysts are expecting this rally to continue into the new year. I think at that point, you know, we do have to uh, take a look at how much of this rally is from the anticipation of rate cuts and and whether they're going to cut. I mean, we follow economic data on a daily basis. And, um, you know, it's important to keep on top of that because things change, right? And, and I always say the world changes, you got to change with it. And that's what, you know, active management is all about for us. Okay, let's talk about uh, some of the stuff that might benefit from this time of year, the holiday rush and all of that. Like, how, how are shipping companies doing? Yeah, you know, it's um, uh, it's interesting to see what just happened with FedEx. Um, so, you know, what we just saw is that Amazon has really taken over the delivery throne from FedEx and UPS. So what started, when you think about Amazon back in the day, it was kind of like a legit logistics-obsessed electronic marketplace for books. Um, and it's grown into the largest shipping company in the world. And Amazon will have delivered more packages than anyone in 2023. Um, and this is the first time ever uh, that we're seeing that. And so, you know, going forward, um, FedEx, who reported yesterday and is down 10.5% this morning, this is a stock we don't own. They've really been kind of the pillar on, you know, seeing how, you know, what's happening in the consumer retail sectors, you know, with how strong their earnings uh, are or have been. Now that that is kind of shifting now, of course, if Amazon is the leader now in, in shipping. So so um, even though FedEx had bad earnings, it didn't concern the markets that much. And that's why you're seeing the markets fairly flat today where FedEx is down 10%. So, so again, this is an important time to be a stock picker, uh, to make sure you're in the right uh, positions going into 2024. Again, the climate is changing. Uh, the cycle is changing and it's important to stay on top of it. Okay. So I imagine this is a lot of stuff that people are paying attention to at this time of year because we're, we start to think about what we want to do better in the year ahead. I imagine, Lori, a lot of people must come to you and say, hey, I want to change how I think about money in the next year. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's important to stick to a strategy uh, that you have, and it's important not to change the goalposts all the time. I, I find that, you know, there's some investors out there that, you know, when markets are correcting and, you know, GICs can do no no wrong, and then when the mar market is surging, uh, then those same people want to be in the stock market, right? The, the people that do the best are people that have a strategy and stick to it. They don't panic during corrections. 
Um, you know, they, they're usually invested for a longer term horizon and they understand markets fluctuate. But also, again, when those corrections are, are here, like I said, you got to change your mindset. What should I be buying instead of what should I be selling? Um, and that's, again, why, uh, you know, people deal with professionals, um, especially active managers in that case. So, you know, going to the new year, I think, um, you know, having that investing path laid out. So, you know, what is your overall investment mix, right? You've got GICs paying a decent amount now. You've got bonds uh, that should do well when rates move lower, um, as well as stocks. So what allocation is is best for you? Um, and hopefully your portfolio manager or financial advisor is making those decisions for you as well. Um, and they're able to make changes on your behalf. Um, you know, and I think, you know, protecting your estate is another thing that you should be just making sure, even though, again, this is a topic nobody, nobody loves. Uh, however, uh, it's, it's necessary. And so that means making sure all the beneficiaries on your, on your accounts are up to date. Um, you know, you're leaving that money to whoever you think should get it. Um, updating or preparing your will is another one and having an enduring power of attorney and a healthcare directive in place is also uh, important. Okay. So that's, that's a big deal. I think just trying to understand it better is a challenge for a lot of people. They think I'm going to start opening those statements. I'm going to start reading through all that, right? People they probably have a lot of questions for you. Yeah. Well, I think, I think as, um, as a portfolio manager, when I'm sitting across the table with, um, with somebody or a couple or a family, you know, these are questions I'm often bringing up and making sure that, you know, I'm referring people to a lawyer that's able to get a will done for them, for example, right. Um, you know, if they've just inherited money or if they've never had a will or they updated it 20 years ago and they've, they're married to somebody else at this point, you know, like it's important to stay on top of this stuff, even though it's, it's not, uh, you know, on everyone's priority list because you never know what can happen. But also, you know, the idea of making sure that you have a financial plan in place for everybody that comes on board with us, we always make sure they have a financial plan. And not every advisor thinks it's as important as we do. I feel, again, you can't manage someone's money unless you know who they are. And so that financial planning process really helps. So this is, again, you know, how much in assets do they have? How much are they going to need in the future? Can they retire? Uh, how, where are they going to get their income from? Should they take CPP earlier? Should they wait? Like, these are questions that everybody seems to have. Um, and not everybody provides those answers. But it's really important to make sure that your money is properly managed, actively managed, so that if if there is some sort of issue next year, even though we don't see it today, uh, that people are acting quickly and making changes on your behalf, raising cash, whatever it might be. Uh, and on number two is making sure that your financial plan is is up to date and reviewing it, um, you know, when life changes or, or every few years and, and, and making sure you're on track to reach those goals, uh, whether you're leading up to retirement or if you're already retired. But at this point, uh, to me, the markets look great. Uh, we're excited to go into 2024. Um, you know, this is a, has been actually a good year at the end of at the end of the day after all the volatility. Really? You and, after you everything and, we've talked about on the show. After this everything year. we talked about, I kept saying it's very rare to have two negative years back to back. It's happened, I think, three times in a hundred years or four times. And so, you know, the idea that bear markets last one to two years, we're also in that realm. So again, you know, when when markets go down, I mean they they generally recover 
too, right? And that's what people have to keep in mind. The world and the markets have gotten over everything at any point in history. So it's just a matter of how long does it take and that you're in, you know, good blue chip kind of holding so that you recover with it. And uh, that's what we're looking at. And so next year we're going into a, my 15th year here on CK. Wow. So I know I'm, I'm becoming part of the furniture already. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I'm excited, but it will be the second week of January uh, that uh, that I'll be back. All right. Well, listen, have a great holiday, some time off there. Well-deserved. I look forward to talking to you in 2024. I do as well. Thanks to me and happy holidays. And it's been a, a great year chatting with you as well. This is Mornings with Simi. 